0: I am willing to wager twenty thousand pounds that I will make a tour of the world in eighty days or less.
1: You accept? I accept. accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK
3: and Joe Byrne in Bern,
2: Switzerland. And in this episode, we'll be talking about St Helena, a volcanic tropical island in the South Atlantic Ocean and one of the most isolated points of land in the world. St. Helena is more than 2,000 kilometers or 1,200 miles from its nearest mainland neighbor. The nearest port is in Angola, and it was uninhabited up until its discovery by the Portuguese in 1502, and was later taken over by the British. Used for much of his life as an island of exile, its most famous inhabitant was Napoleon Bonaparte, who was exiled there after his defeat at Waterloo the island today has a population of just over four and a half thousand and is roughly the size of staten island in new york or san marino from a previous episode this season at just over 121 square kilometers or 47 square miles and its climate is generally mild throughout the year the island is situated in the western hemisphere and despite having the same longitude as cornwall in the uk it is classified as being in west africa by the united nations Its inhabitants, known locally as saints, are the descendants of sailors, settlers, and slaves, and are said to be fiercely loyal to the British monarchy. The island's economy is dependent on British grants and remittances, and up until recently, its only link to the outside world was by a royal mail ship, the St. Helena, which made a five-day journey from Cape Town in South Africa every three weeks. Something that we were doing this season is looking forward to foreshadowing to some of our favorite bits that are in the upcoming episodes. So, Joe, do you want to tell us? What's something that you're looking forward to uh, telling us about in this episode?
3: Yes, something I found interesting is that the story of St. Helena has not one, but two instances of uh, characters in the history being mi- misgendered uh, for long periods of time. And that's uh, not something you get two of in most, most uh, episodes. So okay, all right. That'll be. right. I'll, I'll leave a bit of mystery there. Sounds cool. So every character you think is a man, maybe they're not. Ooh. And Mark, what about you?
4: So something I'm looking forward to talking about is uh, a little-known anatomical piece of trivia about none other than uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, and it's, it's that he actually had uh, an enormous flaming red eye in the middle of his <laughs> forehead, uh, and we uncover some documentary evidence of this, uh, as, as well as a, a daring escape attempt for him that, that never, never quite came off, but would have been pretty magnificent if it did
2: okay uh for me i i'm i'm uh really interested to hear actually we we, we've referred to it i think in at least two previous episodes as a war of jenkins ear but we we will hear about exactly where that name came from and why uh, that was important this is another another episode that's connected to the nexus of jenkins ear so that'll be that'll be pretty interesting
3: the nexus So I'm lucky enough to know someone who was born on Saint Helena. Um, a friend of mine called Helena, okay, uh, inventively, uh, and she put me in touch with her her dad, who, who has very fond memories of his time there in the early nineties. So you, you're going to hear a bit from this guy uh, throughout the episode. But here's him just describing how he he came to hear of this um, place that very few people have heard of and spent some good times there.
0: My, um, and I worked as a project manager on a civil engineering project to construct the seawall, sea defence works in Saint Helena from December nineteen ninety to March ninety five. We were doing a project for Anglian Water in, 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 in Bedfordshire and I got a call from Dublin asking me basically begging me, would I go to Saint Helena that there was a project there that they needed somebody urgently and would I would I go out and uh, I said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll chat with my girlfriend and we'll see what we'll do and see what she says. And that was fine. I rang Sarah. She was she was, she was was working for Sky TV at the time. And she said, where is St. Lena? I said, oh, I'm not really sure, to be quite honest. I'd better get back. So I rang Dublin, back to Dublin, and said, you know, actually, where is St. Lena? I said, well, we think it's somewhere in the South Atlantic. And then... <laughs> I asked few other questions and we discovered, yes, it was an island in the South Atlantic and it was the island that Napoleon was exiled to. So we went up to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London that weekend and had a look around their library to see what information we could find on the, on the island. There was a lot of information on India, Canada, Australia, all these places. But there was a shelf with a couple of pamphlets and, and one very small book about St. Lena. Somewhere among the pamphlets, we found a map. And that was it. That's how we discovered West St. Helena. There was no internet, nothing like that at the time. So,
3: was it a surprise how remote it, it would
0: be? Absolutely. Because the first question I had then was, you know, how do we get there? Like, mm. you know, there was nothing, there was no information as regard. But actually, we discovered then that the last remaining Royal Mail ship, the Ernest St. Lena, was uh, servicing the island, and we That's... actually had the pleasure of joining that ship on its maiden voyage. We flew from. Uh, Dublin to Heathrow, then onto Bryce Norton, and then we, we flew at the RAF into Ascension Islands, where we we, we met the ship. You see the cloud on the horizon first, and then you kind of see something that, like a little dot, and, you know, as the day goes on, you know, you're, you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I the ship's sailing away, and you kind of think, well, you know, an emergency, what, what do we want to do? And kind of, We're, we're concerned then as the year went by and into your second year, you know you become like an islander yourself, you kind of it's kind of happy to see the ship sailing away, so you can get back to your own you know family and friends you know you don't have these people from the ship coming in you get used to the quiet island way of life, and you don't want any- anybody interfering or being around us you know by the time we were leaving, well, we didn't want to leave in the end, but by the time when we when we had to leave. We certainly we didn't really we weren't looking to forward to going back to the real world.
2: Joe, the island was discovered pretty late by our standards. So do you want to do you want to tell us about that?
3: So, going all the way back to uh, before there were royal mail ships and and all of that. As you said, uh, Luke, in the intro, it's exceptionally isolated, and so it's not a huge surprise. It went undiscovered until well into the, the age of discovery when people were navigating around Africa on their way to India, it's sort of, this is when ships started um, coming across St. Helena. It's of particular interest because it's it's on the trade winds. So the trade winds, as you come around the, the Cape of Good Hope, will sort of push you in the direction of St. Helena. And indeed, this is how Drau de Nova, a Galician sailor working for the Portuguese crown, uh, discovered it on the probably the 21st of May, which is the Feast of St. Helena, on his way back from the Portuguese colony of Goa in, in West India. Hmm. And that was uh, 1502, as you said in the intro. Saint Helena, for those who are wondering, is the mother of Constantine the Great, the emperor who converted Rome to Christianity. So Helena was uh, his his very religious mother who pushed him in that direction.
4: All right. The pushy mother of all of Christendom. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah so she can um, claim a lot of responsibility for, for aspects of Western culture. It was once thought that the only explanation for this singularly isolated island was uh, as a a mountain peak from sunken Atlantis, but it's now known to be a volcanic island along the mid-Atlantic ridge, and this was first proposed by Charles Darwin when he visited in 1836. We're going to see a lot of famous visitors as we get through the history of this place. When De Nova discovers this place... It had good water, good fresh water sources, and lots of uh, lots of trees. So good for timber, for repairing your ships. And so he identified it as being a useful stop-off pe- place uh, along the, 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 the route around Africa to India, trade route that was of growing importance. And so they introduced um, fruit trees and vegetables and, and goats as kind of a future food source. Um, so the idea was to just let the goats run loose and populate the island. Of course wreaking havoc on the indigenous ecosystem which consists of things like flightless birds that you often find on these isolated islands. The wire bird being the most famous one I think that features on the emblem. At this point the island was dense forests but within 50 years changed quite dramatically. And it was a great place to leave off your sick crewmen on a ship because the climate's mild and they could convalesce there until the next ship
4: swung by. Convalesce with some goats perhaps? Can, can, can I interest the gentleman and a few goats? we have the choices goats <laughs> here on st helena
3: but there was no permanent settlement <laughs> at this stage one thing i really liked is that they um planted pine trees really tall pine trees as a replacement mass for future ships yeah. which is quite clever and starts this tradition of sort of re- recycling and uh not letting anything go to waste that, that endures on the island because it's so far away from everywhere you need to make sure everything you need is there
2: yeah it essentially becomes like a like on the you know on the motorway you have yeah, like a, a service station yeah <laughs> a service station yeah for ships coming back from
3: yeah with a, with a burger oh, king and a, and a toilet you know you're um, like oh
2: there's nothing out here except for this one this one spot where we can get a new mast and uh, a couple of that's goats That's
3: pretty and, depressing lads come on you know? yeah yeah uh, <laughs> Yeah. So the first permanent resident was a guy called uh, Fernão López or Fernando López, depending if you're Portuguese or Spanish. Um, interesting character. So he'd been sent out to Goa again uh, by Alfonso de Albuquerque, who was the governor of Goa. And Albuquerque had gone back to Portugal to get more people. And Fernão married a local Muslim girl, converted, started to think the Portuguese were terrible uh, and led a bit of a rebellion Of Portuguese troops who thought that maybe the Goa project wasn't in the interest of local people.
4: Bit of a one eighty there by the
3: lads. Yeah, (laughs) and so for his troubles, he was saw it initially described as mutilated by Albuquerque. Hmm. A bit more digging, as it was, his nose, ears, right arm, and left thumb were removed. Love it. Maybe. Love it. Depending which uh, sixteenth-century books you trust. I mean, that sends a message. Certainly sends a message. (laughs) Um, Definitely, he he didn't have a good time. Um, and so he he hitched a ride on a ship on his way back to Portugal. They landed in this place, and he kind of decided, this, "This is all right. I think I'll just stay here rather than go back all mutilated to to, <laughs> po- to Portugal."
2: I mean, I think I think at that stage, anywhere that is not Goa looks pretty attractive, to be yeah, honest.
3: Yeah, yeah, you'd, you'd have a go at it.
4: Do you think he was on the side of the island trying to? Trying to hitch a, hitch a ride, and he just didn't have a thumb to maybe. Maybe make the yeah. gesture. <laughs> land. Oh, God, just waggling his fist. Oh, into did, the, no. A
3: bit of dispute about whether he snuck off the ship, whether he was a stowaway, whether he was put there by the crew. Nobody can agree. But he decided to live there by himself for about 10 years. Very occasionally being visited by by crews who would kind of view him with curiosity as a kind of a hermit or a saint. So maybe he was he was the first saint, you know,
2: and he was the first permanent resident. Is that what you first said? First permanent
3: residence. We lived there for ten years. Wow,
2: that's got to be kind of startling if you if you're a sailor visiting the island and being like, oh God, this <laughs> he's a guy here religion. with no nose and one thumb, and like you know, we this, shouldn't stay. <laughs> yeah,
0: this, an ill yeah, portent. Yeah.
3: Uh, but hermits are meant to be better looking. It's sort of yeah. So a, a quote from one of the first crew's um, logs was: "The crew was amazed when they saw the grotto and the straw bed on which he slept. And when they saw the clothing, they agreed it must be a Portuguese man. So apparently, you could tell nationality <laughs> by piles of clothing in the uh, in the past, because he he ran away and hid when they arrived. But they left him a cockerel that became his pet. So um, and his only friend. <laughs> oh wow! Joe,
4: that's so wistful. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it slept above his head as he slept." Um, and then followed him around during the day it, it sounds like a movie waiting to
4: be made um, a movie no one wants to see so in
3: the end after 10 years he decided to go back to portugal i think he'd been summoned by the king he went to see king Droud the third and uh presented his situation he then um obtained an audience with with pope clement the seventh who absolved him of his sin of apostasy on easter 1530 because um only the Pope could could forgive you for going going all Muslim while out in the colonies. And then sent him back to the king with a letter requesting that he be sent back to his new home. Because the Pope thought he had a touching story there. Result. And so he did. He went back to St. and lived out the rest of his days, but another 15 years, and died there.
4: So... Uh, First resident. Good,
2: good After a good start. Yeah. Yep. Mad
4: thumbless chicken man.
3: Yep. Um, <laughs> good stuff. I'm not sure if the, the 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 cockerel went to Rome with him. That would be. I mean, in the movie, I think he'd have to. But. Um, <laughs> so, there's reports as well of of um, some escaped slaves from Mozambique and Java, somewhere between three and five people hiding away here, living discreetly for long enough to become twenty people. By 1557. I don't know how that happened.
2: Um well that would be the birds and the bees talk Joe, which we're not going to have right now. oh the, the what the
3: wire birds,
4: yes. Uh, yeah, I, feel, I feel I feel like we we get Joe's parents uh, on the yeah. line get get this uh, out of conference call.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and the Portuguese sort of encouraged them to leave in ways there is no detail on, but I assume were not pleasant.
4: That that was uh, that was the version I got. The birds the birds the bees and the Portuguese. That was yeah. uh, <laughs>
3: And then it's kind of repeatedly visited by kind of important travelers around the Cape of Good Hope. So like the Patriarch of Abyssinia on his way to Europe, two Japanese envoys going to see the Pope stopped off here. You know, if you were on your way around Africa to get to Europe, you stopped off in St. Helena for a bit. It's also thought Francis Drake probably observed the island on his circumnavigation of the world, explaining how the British knew where it was, and they'll, they'll use that information later. English navigator Thomas Cavendish in 1588 may have been the first Englishman to land there and he stayed for 12 days. It seems by this point the Portuguese had some form of permanent settlement or at least more permanent than than when it was just the, the, the crazy hermit guy. Cavendish described the valley where the capital, Jamestown, now is as as follows. A marvellous, fair and pleasant valley wherein diverse handsome buildings and houses were set up, and especially one which was a church, which was tiled and whitened on the outside very fair, and made with a porch, and within the church at the upper end was set an altar. This valley is the fairest and largest low plot in all of the island, and is, it is marvellous sweet and pleasant, and planted in every place with fruit trees or with herbs. There are in this island thousands of goats, uh, which are very wild. You shall sometimes see one or two hundred of them together and sometimes you may behold them going in a flock almost a mile long. Wow.
4: South okay. Atlantic goat fever. Yeah. That's the goats reminds. had also
3: multiplied in some mysterious.
2: Clearly they didn't really think about what they were doing to yeah. you know introduce these goats onto this island that has where they have no natural predators whatsoever
3: well there it was meant to be humans would naturally predate them when they came to visit and were hungry but clearly i guess so, there wasn't yeah. enough traffic uh, and there, yeah. there's, a, there's a parallel here with what happened in the galapagos there's a whole island where the government of some latin american country spent decades trying to murder the last goats because they just couldn't kill them all so if you Google the term Judas Goat, you'll find a really good podcast about um, ecological management. Was it Easter Island that we did with the rat plague? Oh, as yeah, well? they like, the, it was a similar kind, similar, kind of a similar thing. kind of thing. Small yeah. islands don't introduce exotic. Just just leave it.
4: Um, so, somebody yeah. drops some lint. The lint breeds. It becomes a lint island. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. That's tough.
3: So now we're getting into the good stuff. So English visitors become more frequent uh, now that they Hello. know where the island is. Hello. Uh, war- and warships begin. The British uh, are coming, coming kind of slowly. So I mean, it's not the kind yeah. of the rapid uh, coming in twos and threes colonization. But, but then they are coming. This this was the oldest um, colony after Bermuda. So they they hadn't had much practice yet, and they started harassing Iberian trading vessels. So at this point, Spain and Portugal were united under the the, the crown of Philip the Second slash First of Spain slash Portugal. Uh, And he discouraged his fleets coming back from Goa, from going anywhere near St. Helena from about 1592 onwards, because there was just too many British floating around. You don't want to get involved with those guys. No, no, you don't. And then the Dutch also started um, causing a bit of trouble as well, because they were developing their own trade in the Far East. And this is just the thing that we we came across back, all the way back in our episode on Gibraltar, was that the Dutch and English uh, privateers were very keen on desecrating the chapels, so this is post-reformation. And so anytime they come to a Spanish-held place, the way they really tried to, you know, rub it into their nose that they had taken their town was to, you know, break the statues and the church or whatever. And so that, that happened here. And that, along with Portugal and Spain opening ports along West Africa, kind of led to the decline of this as a, as a way station. Uh, So it fell into disrepair. The fruit trees were largely destroyed by inconsiderate <laughs> passers through who didn't... Uh...
4: The goats were undersexed.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, briefly the Dutch Republic claimed the island in 1633. Well, I say briefly, like, for 20 years they technically owned it. But, oh, one of them. But they didn't really do much with it and eventually their focus shifted to the Cape Colony uh, which would eventually become South Africa mm. in, in a long and tumultuous journey, we'll revisit uh, in a few centuries' time. Um, I'm sure. But but that's kind of where we're at when the English decide to press their claim, I suppose.
2: They do. So around the late 1650s, the place, as you mentioned, Joe, had been well-established as a resupply port for ships crossing to and from the uh, quote-unquote eastern Uh, half of the world but in a way that will become kind of pretty important going forward the trade winds caused the journey going from europe uh, towards saint helena to be treacherous Mm. so it's it's pretty easy to call there on your way back from the colonies yeah
3: you loop around the cape and then you're blown into it basically
2: yeah, pretty much. So that's a super easy way to, to visit St. Helena, but going the other direction. So I guess if we are using our, our highway or motorway analogy, it's only on one side of the yeah. of the motorway. So it's only easy to get there if we're going on, on one certain direction. So according to one of the sources that I read, only two ships annually made the journey from London to resupply the island at the time. And then around this time, the East India Company, which you know, is it, we could do a series of podcasts on
4: the honourable uh, East India Company. Yeah. I I th-
3: I think that may be what we are doing to some no, extent.
4: Yeah. Is is that is that purgatory? Just being locked into <laughs> reviewing what the East India Company did for hundreds yeah. of years.
3: Oh yeah. God.
2: So for anyone who is unfamiliar with the the work of, of the East India Company, they were essentially given a um, free reign to colonize, you know... Anything, uh, anywhere. In, in the name of Britain, anything sort of, yeah, uh, east of London. Private army,
3: like a company with a private army yeah. destined to just trade everything, trade the hell out of everything yeah. that wasn't bolted down. Exactly. By means of c- colonizing and slavery. And conquest and... and and war, yeah, and yeah, mm-hmm. um, not really. Our business is done anymore. But
4: honestly, how I see the uh, East India Company is, I don't know if you, you know the popular popular music group L M F A O. Uh, well, they have a song called "Shots," and it, it's essentially just angry <laughs> shouting, screaming mayhem. And I I just imagine that song. Playing over every act that the uh, British India Company <laughs> performed in okay. several hundred years, it's just screaming, nonsensical aggression against everybody, and just mm. just murder and blood on tiles and shots, 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 just relentless pounding, tub thumping, uh, consuming, gaping maw of uh, of of capitalism. Uh, all, for all for, for balance, that
3: we should say that. Um... <laughs> That it was very profitable. <laughs> so there's that. I mean, sure. it, it, it arguably, arguably Britain wouldn't have become the massive global power. It, it even still is, despite its best efforts at the moment, without plundering the wealth of much of the world. Of nations.
4: Oh no, uh, they, through, they, they, through they got this it company. done. They got it done, so, no question. They
3: did. So yeah, they
2: were...
4: They were the empire, basically. They were the empire yeah
2: i saw I saw a couple of comparisons saying they were the ExxonMobil or the you know the Google of their day, but they oh. I mean they were even much more than except that.
3: except without international law existing like
2: yeah, no yeah. law and no rules, and yeah they they had as you said Joe basically they were essentially a country were yeah and a very aggressive one oh, um, anyway. So they had first, for their purposes of, of, um, you know, colonizing everywhere, uh, they had first planned to establish themselves on an island in the Malay archipelago, set up a base there essentially, but um, they were opposed by Dutch interest in the region. Mm -hmm. So they they turned their eyes towards St. Helena. Like at the time, this was sort of the beginning of the golden age of piracy, uh, which, you know, is again a, a, a topic that we could podcast on for forever, but essentially... North Atlantic off the coast of Africa at that time was was not a place that you wanted to be sailing alone. Uh, so in 1649, the East India Company ordered all of its ships to rally at St. Helena on the way back from the colonies and to be escorted by warships the rest of the way to London. And that, I get the sense, brought the place forward uh, in terms of, you know, fortified it and, it, it, you know, there was more of a permanent settlement there and a, more of a distinctly British permanent settlement mm-hmm. on it by that point uh because you had a bunches of uh east india company sailors waiting around for their pals to join them on the on the island so they would you know they would naturally kind of build you know houses and sort of build up the place a bit more yeah then in 1657 uh the company was granted a, a charter to govern the island itself by lord protector of the commonwealth at the time Lord Oliver Cromwell so the following year colonization began and the company was permitted to send from england any prov- any provisions uh, free of customs and to convey as many settlers as required however not too many people were keen on uh, going and settling on this on this rock in the middle of the atlantic during the uh, early days of the colonization, the place went through a number of different governors. Uh, if you look at a list of governors of Saint Helena, they essentially changed every couple of years at this at, during this period and Life on the island was was pretty meager uh, The population was small, and many people turned to drink just to you know kind of ease the sorrow of, of, of living on a on a pretty isolated and pretty you know uh, sparsely populated island. Uh. So, one governor during this period called the settlers drunks and ne'er do wells, and they didn't take particularly kindly to that. And uh, he was forcibly shipped back to England. Um, (laughs) They're like, okay, we're done with you.
3: I'm imagining being put in a crate marked delicate.
2: Yeah. I I couldn't figure out exactly how they did that. But um, yeah, he was essentially sort of forcibly evicted from the island. Nice. uh, After pissing off the the settlers. By 1670, 13 years into the colony, the headcount was only around 66. And 18 of those people were slaves. So again, not not exactly a a booming uh, colony.
3: That's also, like, from the point of view of not being murdered in your sleep by your slaves, that's a bad ratio. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I mean, I think we'll see that will continue where even decades on from, from this point, there's there's a pretty large slave population. Yep.
3: And had the Dutch just completely given up on it? Like the English just sort of, this is ours now. And... The
2: du- So the Dutch, at this, they had decided that they were going to establish a settlement on the Cape of Good Hope, which, as you mentioned, Joe, would have eventually become South Africa. But mm. at, that, at this time, it wasn't working out so well. And so they decided, OK, we want to take this place back. We want Saint Helena. Like it's 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 going to become important, and we, you know, we we were there first. So so during uh, Christmas 1672, uh, the Dutch launched an invasion, and the governor, a guy called Beale, was forced to abandon the island and fled to Brazil with his men, where he rallied reinforcement from the uh, East India Company to take back the island. And again, oh I mean. God. I don't imagine it was much of a struggle for the Dutch at the time, considering there were only around 50 people there. You know, it wouldn't have taken much to rout them. And
3: Brazil isn't much further away than Africa, is it? Really? It's, it's a bit more, but not much.
2: It's it's roughly equidistant, I guess. Like that's how isolated it is. Yeah.
3: It's, it's it's so far away from Africa, it's nearly not that far away from South America. Yeah.
2: So I have a quote here from Thomas H. Brooke from The History of the Island of St. Helena, published in 1823, and he he describes the East India Company's retaliation to this invasion. As follows. The Dutch must have kept a bad lookout, for around three o'clock in the morning, a party of two hundred men under a captain Kedgwin was conducted to an opening, which on that occasion acquired its, its present name, Prosperous Bay. They landed quite unobserved at a place called Kedgwin's Rock. One of the party ascended, taking with him a ball of twine. To this a rope was afterwards fastened and hauled up, and thus the others were enabled to follow. John Higgum, a soldier employed on this service, who afterwards settled on the island, was often heard to say that had 20 men opposed them from above, their advance would have been impracticable. After the whole detachment had gained the heights, they marched through Longwood to a place called the Huts, stopping for a refreshment at a farmhouse. <laughs> they, then proceeded, they then proceeded to the summit of Rupert's Hill on the east side of James's Valley. And at the same time, the ships, making their appearance before the town, opened a brisk cannonade, which soon obliged the governor to surrender. So we now have a pretty forcible retaking of the island by the East India Company. And the place was then fortified with 250 troops. And that same year, the monarchy had been restored. And uh, Charles II, again, granted the East India Company a charter to govern the place. In 1676, a guy who you will... All have heard of. Uh, Edmund Haley visited St. Helena oh, yeah. and set up an observatory to map the positions of the stars in the in the southern hemisphere and he would eventually go on to lend his name to a very famous comet, which mm-hmm. most of us would have heard of. Shortly thereafter, it was made a requirement of all ships trading with Madagascar to deliver one slave to St. Helena, as they called through the port. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's essentially a tax that they, they levied on on uh, ships going through the port. A
4: human tax. Yeah, a why not? Humans. I mean,
2: we need people. We need guys to Ugh. to till the fields and, you know, so... By 1679, then the number of slaves on the island had risen to about 80. Then a decade later, war broke out between France and England, which tended to happen a lot around this period. And ships would avoid the island for fear of being ambushed by French men of war. As a result, there were limited opportunities to return back to the UK, leaving many soldiers stranded on the island, which they were not particularly happy about. By 1700, there was a severe shortage of wood on the island. And deforestation had originally begun as an effort to clear the land for agriculture, mm. but a quote-unquote plague of rats and goats—rats uh, and goats—which <laughs> the settlers had themselves introduced and couldn't control—wiped many of the wooded areas off the map, and that meant that firewood then had to be shipped to the island. Oh God! Increasing the cost of maintaining the settlement. jeez. Oh
3: but it was all forest. It was. Yep. Like, it was is, all forest at Se- one point. 1700? Like this is less than 200 years.
4: Yep. And and sending wooden boats filled with wood seems like a weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is this is this
2: is going to this is going to become a thing where they're like should we really try to maintain this place or yeah. should we just abandon it? But so during the summertime, drought would become a problem, and during the winter time, flooding would become a problem. Great, uh, because of the deforestation.
3: But fun, fun fact: during all seasons, the days are almost exactly twelve hours long. Ah. sun rises at six, sets at six.
2: Because it's almost Cause on it's, the equator, it's, right? What,
3: Fifteen degrees off the equator, like it's practically seasonless. But just yes. far enough away for there to be flooding and drought problems.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
3: Anyway,
4: carry on. You can talk over my laughing. You don't need to give it the space to breathe. So in
2: 1691, an explorer called William Dampier called into St. Helena, and he described the island as follows. And he's not as generous as your guy from earlier, Joe. Well, it
3: has been a while, and all the trees are gone. Yeah. If there was miles of goats then, I can't wait to see what's happened now. So in
2: 1691, he says, There is a small English town within the Great Bay, standing in a little valley between two high steep mountains. There may be about 20 or 30 small houses whose walls are built with rough stones. The inside furniture is very mean. The governor has a pretty tolerable, handsome low house by the fort, where he commonly lives, having a few soldiers to attend him and guard the fort. The plantations afford potatoes, yams, and some plantains and bananas. It rained so hard when I was ashore that I had not the opportunity of seeing the plantations. We stayed here five or six days all of which time the islanders lived at the town to entertain the seamen. They are most of them very poor, but such as could get a little liquor to sell the seamen at this time got what the seamen could spare, for the punch houses were never empty. While we stayed here, many of the seamen got sweethearts. That's very <laughs> euphemistic, isn't uh, it? Yeah. One young man belonging to the James and Mary was married and brought his wife to England with him. Right. Another brought his sweetheart to England, and they there being engaged in bonds to marry at their arrival in England. Several other men were over head and ears in love with St. Helena maids who, though they were born there, yet very earnestly desired to be released from that prison from which they have no other way to compass but by marrying seamen and passengers that touch there. So,
4: well, yeah, it's like a nicer story than I thought, but it it certainly doesn't paint St. Helena in a very positive light.
2: No, most of the people that are there want to leave and they're, you know, particularly poor, just tilling the land and. And kind of whiling their days away. Like being there. In 1709, uh, one of the soldiers on the island claimed to have discovered gold and silver deposits in Breakneck Valley. All right, let's name. go. So this is usually the point where we say, oh, yeah, this is the start of the gold rush. And this oh. is
3: this was the golden oh. age.
2: <laughs> gold. Um, and for a short period, it is believed that almost every able-bodied man was employed in prospecting for these precious metals. However... The short-lived Breakneck Valley gold rush ended when uh, surveyors in London determined that the metal fragments were iron pyrite, also known as fool's gold. Ah, yes. So the luck of the island continues. A census in 1723 showed that out of a total population of 1,110, some 610 were slaves. In 1733, coffee plants were introduced to the island where they thrived thanks to the equatorial climate. And Between... 1732 and 1742, fortifications on the island improved. Morale began to rise among the soldiers there. And under the stewardship of Governor Robert Jenkins, uh, the island's first hospital was built. And does anybody remember Jenkins from a previous episode? Is this the guy with the ear? This is the guy with the ear. ear. The war of Jenkins' ear. Yes, this is the guy with the war of Jenkins' ear.
3: So this this is the guy who had his ear cut off by... A Spaniard or something uh, in the Spaniard, Caribbean. Yeah,
2: which which eventually snowballed into a war between Britain and Spanish.
3: And they sent his ear back to Parliament as like, look, we have to go to war. Here's a
2: guy's ear. <laughs> I believe that's a that's disputed, okay. but uh yeah.
3: Oh he he had a go at St. Lena. Well well done Jenkins.
2: Yeah, he was governor for a couple of years, so he, he knew how to listen uh, to the people. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can listen to our our Cuba episode for more on uh, mm. Jenkins and um, his ear.
3: I think he was in Panama as well.
2: Maybe there's there's a lot of links in this episode.
4: He was mobile. Yeah. He was on a boat.
2: <laughs> Captain James Cook or Captain Cook visited the island in 1775 on the oh. final le- leg of his uh, second circumnavigation of the world. 1787 there was a mutiny over alcohol, which is becoming a a, a mm. very important thing on this island, you know, to to dull the the misery of being there, um, and the court court martial condemned ninety nine mutineers to death. These mutineers were then decimated. Wow! So lots were drawn, and one in every ten was shot and executed.
3: Which you this know, is, that's a wonderfully accurate use of the word decimation. I feel the word decimate has been really cheapened by its use to mean any partial destruction. Yeah, I mean, yeah
2: they actually were decimated. Yeah, that's what decimate means.
3: Decimation is a strict ten percent destruction ratio. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And a really messed up way of enforcing morale in a mutiny. I think the Russians <laughs> were big mm-hmm. on it during the Cold War as well. Oh, they were. Uh, it's sort of yeah, no, no, we won't kill all of you. Um, w- you choose who you'll kill, and then you kill yeah. them. There's ten of you, and one of you is going to die.
4: So, but but decimation's kind of gone the way of literally, where like mm. it it where it literally means anything. But decimation makes you think of like everyone is is wrecked, but it generally means like you know my tomatoes were decimated during that frost spell. No, it's it's 10%, but it is murder of people. Um, yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah.
2: Uh, in 1792, the importation of slaves uh, to the island was made illegal, uh, which, oh, you know, sounds great, but then existing slaves were still not freed. That's great. Uh, so it's like, yeah, we're, we're good for slaves.
3: To be fair, like, Britain was sort of moving towards, like, abolitionists were becoming powerful in british politics and so like this is kind of the era sierra leone was founded by you know abolitionists and and freed slaves living in london Hmm. as a sort of a as a better liberia
4: hey guys here's an idea let's never do sierra leone yeah let's just chalk that down Yeah. yeah
3: yeah right but but the there was movements like banning slavery was on the horizon this yeah. was a step in the right direction, for sure. It was definitely a step in the right direction, absolutely. Yeah, but British policy was moving that direction mm. slowly.
2: So, a new law that was put in place at that time would fine anyone for importing slaves fifty pounds, and also bear the cost of returning the slave to his or her place of origin. Oh, I like that.
3: that yeah, that's. Oh my God. So
2: so a census in 1814 showed that the number of inhabitants on the island was about three and a half thousand and then in 1815 we have the arrival of a very famous guest for which the um the island of saint helena will become very well known shall we take a break here
4: oh let's, let's uh, yes
1: He may sit now and tell of the sights he has seen all While forlorn he does mourn on the Isle of Saint Helena
2: So that was a song from Mary Black singing about this famous period in Saint Helena's history. All right, Mark, do you want to tell us about this famous visitor in 1815?
4: Okay. Napoleon the business Bonaparte.
2: Who? Never heard of him.
4: So Napoleon had been defeated by uh, Russians, Prussians, Cushions, Muffins, Puffins, and also, of course, the British. They had signed a treaty, uh, the Treaty of Fontainebleau, uh, and they'd sequestered him on the Isle of Idris Elba, hilarious joke.
3: I don't, I don't think that's...
4: <laughs> Look, I've I, I put this throughout my notes, so I'm going to be reading it as it is in the notes. Okay. <laughs> the, the Isle of Idris Elba. I'm just picturing a gigantic
2: island like w- shaped as his head. Oh, no. You know, like a big like a Easter Island head kind of thing.
4: <laughs> this, this island is a shoe-in for the next Bond, I'm telling you. Put, put okay. my it, guys. So it's it's between Corsica, which is actually the, the bit of France where, where Napoleon from. is, of course, from, yeah. and Italy, which is, of course, basically beside France. So yeah. they put him on a bit of not what France. places
3: he was emperor of recently.
4: <laughs> very, very, very recently. Yeah. Now, the British didn't sign this treaty because they had spent years fighting Napoleon and maybe just had the first inkling of what a wily, foxy bastard he was. Hmm. Napoleon duly escaped from the island of Idris Elba, thus beginning what was known as the 100 Days, where he quickly accumulated 200,000 troops and basically retook France in less time than it takes, you know, some uh, next Bond guy to put on a fancy hat. This culminated in the Battle of Waterloo, which is why train stations and cities around the world are called Waterloo, whereby the coalition of Russians, Puffins, Jimmy Ruffins, etc., smashed Napoleon's armies and some very smug Brits Took possession of the man who used to be the emperor,
3: and Wellington, the the leader of the British forces in that battle, uh, also visited Saint Helena at one
4: point. Uh, yes, he did, uh, Just... and in fact, in a weird way, his 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 visit kind of formed the basis of quite oh, a I lot see. of Napoleon's visit. So the British decided to stash The world's most escapiest, Most dangerous man As far as they were concerned uh, In Saint Helena He surrendered to the ship The HMS uh, Which they decided was too old And too unreliable to ship him Passed him over to the HMS Northumberland They sailed and Napoleon apparently was in actually pretty good spirits. Uh, He even admitted apparently on the voyage that he would have very much liked to have invaded Ireland if his ships had been a little bit better. Oh, well. Napoleon, uh, his mood seemed to darken as he approached his new home. I can't imagine why. Yeah, he left the ship uh, in darkness uh, to avoid the gawps of the slack jawed uh, folks and yokels. So because of the slowness of communications at the time the inhabitants of St Helena then numbering about 5000 including about 1000 slaves had not heard of Napoleon's escape from the Isle of Idris Elba or oh, the, or the battle of Waterloo let alone <laughs> that Napoleon had been decided instead decided to move Napoleon to their island so that must have
3: been very confusing that would be like you know you live living on an island in 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 Indonesia and just Donald Trump turns up in chains <laughs> in a cave. that's quite an image manned, manned by image. by like the Nigerian military you're kind of what 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 what
4: happened uh, s- 7 plus 5 equals green here guys I'm not I'm not sure this works out um, I feel like yeah, the internet's been down for a day or two but like, <laughs> my wifi's bad but is this bad um, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, the the locals weren't very thrilled about this whole thing. These are the words of Betsy Balcom, age 13. My own feeling at the intelligence was excessive terror. <laughs> The earliest idea I had of Napoleon was that of a huge ogre or giant, with one large flaming red eye in the middle of his forehead, and long teeth (laughs) protruding from his mouth, with which he tore to pieces and devoured naughty little girls, especially those who did not know their lessons. Wow. That's a weird (laughs) image. The name of Bonaparte was still associated, in my mind, with everything that was bad and horrible. Nor was I singular in these feelings... They were participated by many much older and wiser than myself. I might say, perhaps, by a majority of the English nation. Hmm. Bonaparte, and it's weird, you do see references, he, he was their Hitler. Yeah. He was the guy that they saw as the worst thing in the world. But he was kind of
3: Hitler-y in his, it, I it. must subjugate all of Europe under my nation, that is great, you know, it, it, like there's parallels for sure. It,
4: he was maybe a bit smarter. Yeah, and a
3: little bit less genocidal, um, that
4: which helps. Yeah,
3: you know Hitler is definitely more more of an evil person. Mm. But, Napoleon was um, very good at his job. Yeah, but
2: Hitler didn't have a, a, a fl- one flaming red eye in the middle of his forehead. Joe, so he had
3: that <laughs> and going yet that's him. my image. And any time yeah. I was bad at my lessons, I, I was terrified that Hitler would eat me.
4: So Napoleon was originally housed in the same place where uh, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, had been housed when he came back from, from India. Ah. And he was uh, Napoleon didn't like it very much. And he decided to be moved to the Balcom House, as in mm-hmm. of Betsy Balcom, the teenager we just heard from. Um, and they became
3: it, really friendly, right?
4: I think he moved back there actually on two separate occasions. Mm. And this house also was another place where the Duke of Wellington had stayed himself. So these these were the kind of, you know, fated dueling generals star crossed to hate each other and, you know, fight for eternity, kind of a thing. And it's weird mm. they both ended up on Saint Helena staying in the same flipping houses. Eventually, um they decided to settle him in Longwood, which was an estate yes. far out of uh far out of the town. Um at the time, it was not well equipped to house both Napoleon and his bit of an entourage he'd accumulated. Napoleon was not keen. Uh, on July 8th, 1816, General Charles de Montpelon wrote to the governor, Governor Lowe, on behalf of Napoleon, Longwood is the most unhealthy part of the island. There is no water, no vegetation, no shade. For two months, it has rained into the rooms of Count Lacasse, another entourage member, and Baron Gourgueux, Uh, Rendering those lodgings Very unwholesome A great quantity of linen And other effects Have been rendered useless By the rats Mm. Um, So it's a bit It's a bit grim It's not It's not Versailles No
3: no.
4: Napoleon wanted to move To the governor's mansion Governor Lowe Um, (laughs) The new governor Was not really having it Governor Lowe in fact Was born in Galway As it turns out Mm. And he was seen As a mega hard ass On Napoleon Because he had spent Quite a lot of his time Fighting Napoleon In Napoleon's wars So he had a bit of a You know Shtick up his rump About Napoleon Anti-Napoleon bias A little bit Mm. And He He may not have needed To do all the stuff he did Which apparently included Charging Napoleon Rent uh, Forcing Napoleon To sell his silver (laughs) Uh, He also maybe didn't need to restrict Napoleon's access to firewood, forcing his entourage to break up the furniture for kindling. He also probably didn't need to confine him to his house, given that he was on the most isolated island in the world. Um, But he did. And the truth is, Napoleon might have played all this up because he was actually trying to play in the sympathies of of mainland Europe and trying to still think about maybe coming back to power. I mean, if the Isle of Elba taught him one thing, was that he was never too far away from maybe a... A comeback. Have
3: Have you got anything on the the other Irish person he interacted with on that island?
4: I do indeed. I do indeed, and it it, it fits a little bit into this actually. The 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 other Irish person who is involved in the story, it was actually his physician, and it was the physician who came from the original uh, ship that he surrendered to the the HMS bellerophon uh, which was Barry Edward O'Mara, mm. and he was. He He's enormously important in this, kind of because he was the first guy to publish a book. Mm. He lived with Napoleon on this island for years and years. He also kind of was uh, intercessionary between the entourage and between the governor. Um, Can
3: I read you a quote from um, Trinity College Dublin's alumni page where they describe <laughs> his story? So he, he studied medicine there. And... Um, they phrase it, Napoleon suggested to Barry O'Mara that he keep a diary of everyday events on the island. When Barry asked why, Napoleon replied, Doctor, it will make you a fortune, but please do not publish it until after I am dead. Barry replied that he was flattered and greatly honoured. That night he dipped his quill into black ink and by gutted candlelight started the first page of an 1800 page diary. Jesus. So, it was uh, Napoleon's idea to, because, so basically they were buddies as far as I can tell. It, um, it does seem that way, and and his account and is Omara very. Omar wasn't keen on on being a spy as much. You kind of just, I want to be a doctor. Uh, this guy seems nice. I'll doctor.
4: He, he he also seemed, I think, keen to be a spy because it got out the word that Governor Lowe was treating Napoleon very badly. Yes. So yeah, I think yeah, yeah. In, for the sake of Napoleon, he was actually quite keen to get the word out. But I think you're right. He, he, he mm. didn't really take to it so well. Another just weird detail that came up was somebody sent uh, Napoleon an ice machine, which was a new invention <laughs> uh, to the <laughs> island. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon had many admirers around the world, including in Britain, uh, Lord and Lady Holland, who sent books and gifts, etc. Uh, they sent him an ice machine invented in 1810 by uh, Scottish mathematician John Leslie, who had observed that by using concentrated sulfuric acid, which absorbs water, you could accelerate the evaporation of water in a container. And uh, Napoleon kind of thought this was quite a quite a lark. He t- He took in his hand the piece of ice produced from the water and observed to me what a gratification it would have been in Egypt. This is just to mention that Napoleon is a real bore when it comes to Egypt. He's like,
3: oh, there's one time I was in Egypt. Oh,
4: every friggin paragraph he's always going on about. (laughs) Apparently, when he left the boat, he made a a witty quip that, uh, you know, if I'd stayed in Egypt, I'd be running Asia by now. (laughs) Why didn't you? (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's kind of how all of the all of the mummies and stuff were stolen, right? That was
4: Yeah, and the Rosetta Stone I think was around that time yeah. and I think somebody burned wasn't, all the ships and it wasn't walk back. so much
3: asking for asking for permission to to take priceless artifacts wasn't really a thing yet
4: not not the thing. So, he had a few visitors on his time of the island. Uh, one among them was Raffles, uh, from our Singapore episode. And we actually mentioned ah, this in that wow. episode.
3: Yeah, we did mention that that he, so he just stopped did, off yeah. and was unimpressed. Was that the, the... the
4: meeting did not go well. Yeah. I think I think Napoleon was was back into a darker mood at this point. Mm. Uh, and Raffles had a bit of a, you know, Napoleon is Hitler kind of vibe about him. Uh, this is a quote from uh, Raffles Possessing a capacity and talent Calculated to enslave mankind I saw in him all this capacity All this talent Was devoted to himself And his own supremacy I saw that he looked down On all mankind As his inferiors Which is really just the French If we're honest mm. A wild animal caught Not tamed Raffles mm. That's that's how we saw him So,
3: so yeah the meeting was kind of not not destined to go well
4: Napoleon just didn't talk to him and that seemed to be how it went for a lot of people a lot of people turned up on the island hoping to see Napoleon and he just like couldn't give a fig to be honest only if he was in a good mood would he actually meet you Uh, in 1817 he met uh, Captain Basil Hall and he already met him because he had actually known his father who had been the first Englishman he'd ever met and I read the account of it and Napoleon actually spends the most time asking him questions he's like Hmm. so why are you single? and the guy's like I don't know he's like it's because you're poor right? (laughs) Stuff like that like You're getting any girls lad Like it's basically You know But I suppose
3: he's probably Fed up talking about That war he lost
4: Yeah Egypt's not quite so Hot a topic anymore And you know Mm. I was in Egypt right
3: (laughs) Yes You mentioned that To my father The first Englishman You ever met I hated him So
4: English that was back
3: when I thought republics were great.
4: <laughs> okay, so uh, just quickly just to to round off this Napoleon section, Governor Lowe had a cordon around the island uh, to keep uh, Napoleon there, of course, but it was penetrable. Omara in particular was able to sneak some things through, including papers, but also locks of Napoleon's son's hair because uh, he had been he, he couldn't see his kids or his wife. Mm.
2: Um, That's not creepy.
4: A little yeah, it's a bit weird. Uh, it's a bit, give pop up your hair, if that's uh, yeah, a reference anybody gets. Yeah. So there were accounts of possible rescue attempts. Apparently, a group of former Napoleonic veterans assembled in Buenos Aires. The scheme was broken up before anything had happened. And there was also talk of using a submarine or even multiple submarines to sneak him off the island, particularly a scheme by a guy called Johnston the Smuggler, who is his own podcast. He sounds like the guy for the job. The order was actually apparently in for a small submarine that was being assembled on the banks of the Thames. But. It was only being assembled when Napoleon died, uh-huh. six years after he was, he was deposited on St. Helena in 1821. He was uh, delirious in his bed. He was in bed for a month. He died on May the 5th, 1821 at 5.49 p.m. murmuring about the army, his son, his wife, and France.
2: Oh, I, th- I really thought you were going to say Egypt there for a second. <laughs> I was like, oh. It, and,
4: and of course, you know, <laughs> needless to mention, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. but they, 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 they buried him on the island. But 19 years later, he was brought to, uh, brought to France for his proper burial. Essentially, the, the only thing that happens after that is, is kind of the real end of slavery on the island. Uh, in 1818, Governor Lowe had persuaded all the slave owners to free any new babies born after mm. Christmas Day, which is a good thing. That is also an awful thing.
3: Yeah. And they also started giving people loans to buy themselves out of slavery.
4: Yeah, from the, the, the Honourable British East India Company. They, who were yeah. still
3: technically in charge. I think the British government had taken a more active role during the Napoleon exactly. imprisonment. But exactly. it was still legally the company's island.
4: And I think the company knew well enough to just kind of respect, it's mm-hmm. Na- it's Napoleon, come on. Um, and yeah, after that, they were kind of happy to, to make their money back, but... Uh, yeah as you say uh loans to slaves for the slaves to buy out their contracts it's still not good it's very bad and yeah that's uh that's up to about
3: 1834 just um one one postscript from from the napoleon thing after his body was sent back to france there was a bit of a a change in the administrative status of the place he once lived so i have a clip here from fran describing that
0: I lived on Piccolo Hill in Longwood and Napoleon oh. resided when he was in the island in Longwood House so basically I could physically throw a stone from my back garden into Napoleon's back garden no, yeah. Not a lot of people can say that No, no, no and uh, yeah, we went every morning the French flag went up Geranium Valley, the tomb in Geranium Valley and Longwood House were vested in, the, in French and they actually treat it as their territory They 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 fly the French flag over Longwood House and they celebrate Bastille Day as well every year.
4: Recently, they they shipped all of Napoleon's uh, old furniture back to the house. I saw some, <laughs> some footage of it, and it's like it's it's from a museum in in Paris. And there's a bunch of lads down the docks, just kind of like putting bits of crepe paper on these like immaculate, amazing pieces of furniture that they're just kind of drawn up in in the high ace up to up to Longwood. That's weird.
3: So. Up until this point, the um, East India Company had owned St. Helena. But from the 1830s onwards, there was a lot of restructuring happening in the way that the British Empire operated or British interests abroad operated. And so as part of the 1833 India Act, power over St. Helena was officially transferred from the company to the crown, at least in theory. And it became a crown colony, which is a term we've come across a few times before. Mm -hmm. In reality, St. was an afterthought in global affairs and it actually took until 1836 until Major General George Middlemore and some troops in the 91st Regiment arrived to formally take power on behalf of the crown from from the East India Company. Mm. So that's only three years of a delay. Uh, No big deal. And this is when they dismissed the St. Helena Regiment who had been running the show up to that point. And they set about with what you might call a a process of austerity, as fashionable then as it is now, where they basically wanted to cut down the admin costs for the island. They dismissed pretty much anyone who had any kind of administrative job that wasn't strictly 100% necessary that the East India Company had sort of kept on. And so those who had the resources to do so gradually just began leaving and looking for opportunities elsewhere. Because everyone was British. They, there was no... No one was really St. Helinian at this point. The population dropped from uh, about 6,000 to 4,000 by 1890. So it's a pretty big drop-off over the, those decades. There were a number of interesting visitors during this period. Uh, we mentioned Charles Darwin right up the top of the show. On the return leg of his Beagle voyage, which is famous for other reasons... He um, stopped off at St Helena and investigated its volcanic origins, and he described it as such. I so much enjoyed my rambles among the rocks and mountains of St Helena that I felt almost sorry on the morning of the 14th to descend to the town. So, he liked the mountains. And then, continuing the theme of of Irish doctors in uh, St Helena, which seems to be a thing that keeps happening, Dr James Barry was appointed the principal medical officer from 1836 to 37, so that period is when, when Darwin was there, and was very critical of the widespread venereal disease, which uh, he blamed on the, the removal of the militia, um, which basically meant a lot of the women on the island were reduced to having no source of income other than prostitution.
4: Oh, jeez.
3: So, because all the soldiers were gone, they weren't. So, yeah, as a result, there was... um. Rampant, rampant diseases that um, Dr. Barry was unimpressed with. However, the doctor had a clash with a fellow army surgeon, resulting in Barry being arrested and court-martialed on a charge of conduct unbecoming the character of an officer and a gentleman. And Barry was was found not guilty and, and honourably acquitted, but had been sent back to Britain for trial, and so was no longer in this post. But there is... um. There is something interesting about that charge, the conduct on becoming a gentleman, that uh, oh. we'll, we'll, we'll come back to in a moment. Because while Barry had a, an illustrious medical and military career, all serving all over the empire, being a, a, a darling of high society in, 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 in England, when the doctor died, he left instructions that he buried in the clothes he died in and undergo no medical examination. Oh, God. And... This was, of course, promptly ignored, and the woman who was laying out his body um, noticed that well, he was laying out her body.
1: Oh.
4: Does
3: this ring a bell?
4: No, no interesting.
3: No. You never okay, so so James Barry had actually been living an elaborate lie uh, for decades, um, wow. and was in fact born as Margaret Ann Bulkley in Cork, in Ireland, in 1795. Being from a kind of uh, an upwardly mobile middle-class family and smarter than her brother um, and well-connected through the friends of her her artist uncle, also called James Barry. She was kind of surrounded by liberal thought and was encouraged particularly by um, General Francisco de Miranda, a Venezuelan revolutionary who was hanging out in Britain at that time that uh, she should become a surgeon. And so they created an identity, passed off her her high-pitched voice and and fresh face with the youth, and uh, got her into medical school in in the University of Edinburgh. I mean, good on her. And she served all over the empire, was the first woman general uh, commissioned by Queen Victoria, first female doctor, actually, as far as I know, at least in in the UK. Wow. And um, famously was quite testy, Apparently, anytime anyone questioned her, uh, her, you know, manliness, she kind of was like, I'll fight you. (laughs) (laughs) And so didn't have a lot of close friends and had a run with Florence Nightingale in the Crimea. Was a bit annoyed that she got a lot of credit for introducing hygiene reforms that that, as Dr. James Barry, she'd been pursuing all over the empire and not getting any credit for
4: because um, it's it's hard to be sexist. When you're a woman,
3: yeah, who's, yeah. who's
4: giving, giving guff to a woman who's getting credit because because she's the first woman to do a thing? Yep, it's an That's interesting,
3: yeah, an interesting situation. Just one more thing: in, in South Africa, when Barry was there, I'm, I'm going to go back with with he. I think you know why not? He he performed the first successful cesarean section where both mother and child survived. Wow! The child was christened James Barry Munich in Barry's honor. And uh, the name was passed on through the family, leading to a later prime minister of South Africa, J. B. M. Herzog, carrying the name of this, this, um, wow, fraudulent doctor man, yeah, wow, from Cork. That's that's, that's so a great story. I, I was really happy when I saw th- this that that James Barry featured here because that's a great story, and I don't know when else we'll get to tell it. Right, um,
4: that's a find, yeah.
3: But fascinating, and not the only instance of miss miss. Uh, misgendering uh, that will happen in our journey through St Helena's history so um, major changes in, in trade and technology and, and, and global commerce from the 1850s to the 70s led to St Helena kind of its importance in the world tanking quite dramatically
4: the, the goat yeah. trade was down
3: the, yeah um, and more importantly the boat trade was changing direction <laughs> So the development of a coaling station at Aden in in, in modern-day Yemen dramatically shortened the, the overland route via the Red Sea. Uh-huh. Also, steamships were, were now in vogue, and they don't really rely on the trade winds as much because they're running under their own power rather than wind power. And then the real death knell was in 1869 when our, our old friend Ferdinand de Lesseps designed the Suez Canal.
4: Ferdinand de Lesseps.
2: Oh, God, don't, not, not Be again. <laughs> de Lesseps. <laughs>
3: Uh, you, you may recall him from our episode on Panama,
2: and Mark's characterization of him from from that episode. Anyway, from
3: eighteen in 1855, 1100 ships called at Saint Helena, and by 1889, it was less than 300. So that had a pretty hard impact on the island and its economy. We've been talking about slavery a little bit. The 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 the, this play, the island played a decent role in the eventual end of the, the Atlantic slave trade with the British deciding slavery big no no a squadron was deployed here in 1840 for the purpose of policing the ocean and capturing oh, Portuguese yes. slave vessels and that would be the there was a, a court there that could try people D- plying the slave trade
4: didn't they imprison slavers on the island yeah. at one point yeah yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. yeah uh, definitely and also 15,000 liberated Africans as as they were called were were um, landed here from 300 different ships over the course of the next decade. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, about a third of them died from various diseases and deprivations that they'd suffered on the ships. You know, they were often oh, being brought off ships, okay. you know, malnourished or or starving or in many cases already dead uh, because, <sighs> you know, the, the conditions on those ships were, were absolutely ships. heinous. Yeah. But in total, about 20,000 people uh, were settled for some period in the, in what's called Lemon Valley, when numbers grew, the members were sent off to the Caribbean or to, to Cape Town as labourers or eventually to Sierra Leone to join that colony. Um, in the end, only about 500 remained permanently, but they still have descendants uh, on the island. So they, they became part of the unique tapestry of, of St. Helena genealogy. So yes, that's a, a, definitely a decisive and conclusive role that was played in the, the slavery story by St. Helena, which I think I, I would consider a good thing. One thing that was booming for the the island was was their coffee. You mentioned the coffee earlier. Mm-hmm. In the late 1800s it was the most expensive coffee in the world. And to this day it's still highly prized and you can buy it in Harrods in London. An interesting feature of the island is that since the 1860s it's had a termite problem, an, an endemic termite problem.
2: As if it didn't already have enough problems.
3: Yeah, I know. Mm. Timbers from a captured a slave ship were thought to have brought this these things called white ants to the island and they still present a challenge to, to all building projects. Fran, who we talked to earlier, was was a project manager in a construction project, so he, he, he had a bit to say about this.
0: All the timber used on the island is hardwood. The most popular hardwood would be the Oroco, but mahogany is used as well because of the invasive white ant. Any piece of, of, of white timber now, I, I had packaging and stuff that came in and the timber crate, and I remember using some of these pieces of timber to make say, for in the garden, and it's Hammered them into the ground, and sure enough, within two weeks, it was just more this powder what was in the ground. They're very nasty creatures. Good lord!
3: So, did this impacted wooden structures and documents would just be eaten, and this is a and it's an ongoing problem that everything's made out of mahogany now, which is why I'd be worried about Napoleon's furniture.
4: Oh right, yeah.
3: Then in eighteen eighty two, Jonathan, the world's oldest tortoise, as in he's still alive. Uh, he's thought to have arrived on the island around now. Mm -hmm. Where did he
2: come from, Joe? The Seychelles, I think. Okay, interesting. Yeah, we'll have a bit more on him later on. So I believe, Joe, that um, Napoleon wasn't the only person who was exiled on the island,
3: is that right? Yeah, the British kind of saw that this was a a thing you could do with a really isolated island. And so we touched on it back in our Namibia episode, and I think we need to look at it again in, in some more detail, but like, the forging of South Africa as a country was incredibly messy. Oh, yeah.
4: I, I still... I Honestly, I still don't get South Africa now, to be honest.
3: Yeah. It's yeah. still
4: really tough to get your head around.
3: And so Britain was in the process of trying to make this union of South Africa over the late 1800s, early 1900s. And part of this process involved subjugating the Zulus. Oh, no, no. And also... Um, conquering the the Dutch speaking Boer people, who had their own independent republics.
4: Oh wait, I know how this goes. Yeah.
3: Um it it mm. goes with Britain winning. And so at various points some of the the key players from the the non British side ended up in St. Helena. King Dinizulu Kakechwayo, who was, was the son of the Zulu King Kakechwayo. he inherited his father's throne Eventually, and was the last Zulu king recognised by the British as an independent king of Zululand, which before it was completely absorbed by British rule. But in order to ensure his inheritance, he actually teamed up with some some Boer farmer soldiers under General Botha, and they formed a volunteer unit that helped him defeat his rivals for the for the Zulu premier chieftainship. And in return, they got to found what they called the Nieuwe Republic, which um, I don't know how your Dutch is but I think that means the New Republic mm-hmm. oh. uh, as an independent country on some land that they were given by the Zulus and the idea was that they'd have access around Natal to a port and be able to trade and so on the British didn't like this they decided to annex the entire coast of Zululand and this New Republic and um, King Dinazulu led an uprising against that for some reason And was sent for seven years to St. Helena. He described it as follows, reasonably positively. We are contented as we are allowed to go wherever we like. We live in a very large, very nice house. It's cool and away from the mass of people. The house is situated on a hill and we live alone. We see the governor of St. Helena very often. He is very nice and visits us frequently. This is a very large place. We were wrongly informed and we were told we were going to live on a small rock. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I mean
3: it's pretty small
2: It's pretty but. small
3: But I think yeah. He was I, I, the worse I like this I
4: like, like this guy's Response to being Imprisoned Is just like Grand What are you talking about Idiots <laughs> like, It's great Whereas like Napoleon like Withered into a Friggin prune Going yes. mad Like sleeping in Five beds a night uh, <laughs> And being torn apart Because you know No one talked about Egypt uh, This guy's like Idiots Grand Fine <laughs>
3: So he and his retinue kind of adapted to British lifestyle and dress. I I think the king converted to the Church of England while he was there, um and was baptized. And uh yeah, so they, they didn't have a terrible time, I think people warmly remember them. And eventually he went back to his own country. Things didn't go great, another fifteen Zulu leaders were sent here about a decade later for rebelling against attacks the British wanted to bring in. Okay. Um things yeah. Zulu nation didn't end particularly well in terms of keeping its independence.
4: To be fair, the the, the Zulu like culture is still oh, like a still, major yeah, still thing. Like, but just political like,
3: independence got, yeah, got yeah, um, yeah. taken away.
4: There's still a big constituency in South Africa today. Yes,
3: yeah for sure. Uh, in the Second Anglo-Boer War, 6,000 Boers were imprisoned uh, at Deadwood and Broadbottom okay. um, in St Helena from 1899 to 1901. They brought the population of the island to an all-time high. Of 9,850 people Which was far too many for You know the administration didn't know what to do with them mm. uh, And it's These were kind of considered the first Concentration camps to an extent
4: Oh god of course Where oh. everyone just
3: lived in tents behind barbed wire Oh Jesus uh, Yeah so <laughs> That's a thing
4: And oh. uh, it gets better um, And Winston be Churchill's look. on the edge of us waving them on yeah well, fellows
3: but they were very strongly encouraged by the governor of Cierndale, that the natives of the island were encouraged to treat these people with respect, that they were, you know, they were honourable people who were fighting for the cause of their country, that they believed in, and that was an honourable thing to do, and they shouldn't be mistreated, they are prisoners, not... Slaves and so on.
4: the The Saint Helenaans seem super sound. Like in yeah, general, yeah, they were really like nice today to and them. Before, and before, they just seem grand. It's it's yeah. what what they're included in their party to so much awful stuff. Yeah, they themselves are actually they're, they're just kind of like getting on. Well, and,
3: and these people were integrated into society. Many of them stayed and had families, hmm. um, and are very warmly remembered. There was a, an Afrikaans language newspaper founded. You know, it, it, as as prisoner war camps go. It was okay. Like there, there were a couple of hundred deaths from a, a, an outbreak of um, typhus. I think, but that's
4: typhus you know. is as typhus does. Yeah.
3: So, something I did come across. that was interesting is that that's two of the generals, General Cronje and um, General Follion, who were both exiled here, so they were big leaders in the Boer.
4: I've, I've heard of Cronje. Boer.
3: So they ended up here, and that was really when you know you've lost is when your best generals are on a prison island. Uh, but they weirdly both ended up performing in a thing called the Boer War Circus in America. Oh my what? God. Where oh, they God. reenacted episodes from the war uh, at oh like a, no. a, a show in... Oh yeah. no. Um, which, yeah. uh, which, I don't know, is a bit mad. And also tried to set up a Boer colony in Mexico with the help of Teddy Roosevelt.
4: Let, let, let's be honest. If, if, if Napoleon had been in a different century... He'd have been over there, like on a Kentucky county fair, mm. uh, like pointing reenacting at bits of ice. Waterloo. Well, I was going to say oh, Austerlitz, God. or one of the ones the battles he won. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I threw my stinky cheese at the boats. Great <laughs> victory, in France.
3: Definitely, that that was a big part of the the island's economy, and when they left, it really hurt the island again because you're taking a huge amount of. Workforce and 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 uh, income out of the place.
4: Yeah, you can't do that to an economy.
3: The only replacement industry that that came along was was the, the flax industry and and lace, hmm. which is still a popular export. And it, you know, for the mm, couple of decades, mm, it did yeah, them, well, lace it maybe. Did, yeah, for a couple of decades, the flax was quite a good crop, but not anymore. Not so much anymore. Yeah. And um, yeah, during World War One, the island didn't didn't get up to much. Um it was under martial law. They were concerned about German held Namibia. Some German ships had just visited Saint Helena before the war on their way to Namibia and That's another callback to our yeah. very first episode. Yeah. Which I, I think
2: I have a couple more coming up, so I think this might be like the most heavy like the most callback. To the episode. To episode? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, it turns out Saint Helena is the nexus of our entire
4: podcast. Like yes. this is this is the this is the this central is the hub of everything that we've done. This podcast is brought to you yeah. by Saint Helena. Yeah. yeah.
3: Forty-six islanders served in World War One, and they didn't get the Spanish flu.
4: So, yay! That's something. Did they get shot in the face?
3: Um,
4: the stats no. don't show that, do they? Hey, no.
3: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then just two more things before we reach World War Two. The SS Papua Nui, en route to Australia, I think, on route to Tasmania. Actually, I've heard
4: this name before. Uh,
3: it, it arrived in port on fire <laughs> in in, uh, in I think nineteen
4: fifteen or so. Uh, with
3: three hundred sixty-four passengers on board, You're they they well, all guys. went onto the island and um, and didn't burn to death.
2: Very calmly, yeah. I'm
3: sure, and uh, yeah, There's some stuff from the wreck is still floating around. Like, people still have like. You know, crockery from the wreck and stuff. Wow. And then the final important prisoner I have in my early 20th century is, is the uh, the self proclaimed Sultan of Zanzibar, uh, Said Khalid bin Bargash, who. Which may be a uh, uh, shout out to a, to a potential future episode. Yep. He was exiled here from 1917 to 1921 before being transferred to the Seychelles uh, to join oh. other British exiles from Ghana, Uganda, and Somaliland. Wow. And, Saint yeah, Helena
2: is the Nexus it this is, is the Nexus. Is, yeah. this is weird. Okay right. let's take a quick break and then we'll we'll move on to uh, World War II and speed through the rest of this episode. So, 1931 census uh, of the island showed a population of just less than 4,000, and a goat population of nearly 1,500.
4: So, highly sexed. Despite highly sexed. Is
3: that a a section of the census?
2: Yeah. Despite the um, you know the the fluctuations that we've just been talking about uh, since 1814 in uh, you know 117 years, the population had by total had increased by less than 500. So, you know, still growing very slowly, but, uh, you know, is growing.
3: Those aren't great fertility rates. Just
2: six islanders from St. Helena would fight and die in World War Two, And the island itself during the war would be used mainly for uh, refueling and resupply of British Navy ships. Oh. Although, as I think we mentioned earlier... The island did provide a handy point of ambush by, uh, you know, opposing forces. So you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse to have the, you know, such an isolated island in the middle of of the of the Atlantic. Because it's it's great to have it, but it's also you know a point where the enemy knows you're going to call. In 1939, islanders from Saint Helena observed the German battle cruiser Admiral Graf Spee uh, passing by the island. Do we remember that ship would later go on to be scuttled in Montevideo Bay. which you can hear more about in our Uruguay episode. So another callback. Nexus! Yeah. In August 1941, the RFA Darkdale, uh, a Dale-class British fleet tanker carrying over 3,000 tons of fuel oil, 850 tons of aviation spirits, and 500 tons of diesel oil, arrived at the island and a few weeks later was torpedoed by German submarine U-68 The U-boat fired four torpedoes, uh, apparently one of which did not hit the tanker. 41 crew members from the ship were killed. Uh, Two were blown clear and survived. Wow. Uh, The captain and chief engineer and a handful of others were uh, ashore, and the ship had been commissioned just over a year previously, so... That was, uh, I'm sure, a bit of a b- blow to the Churchill's Admiralty at the time.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I, I was told that um, very recently they have secured that shipwreck. They've gone down controlled dives to remove all of the fuel. A lot of oil. At great expense. At great expense, and, yeah. And um, preserve this as a, as a Commonwealth war grave because mm. they're very proudly and loyally British down there, apparently. Mm-hmm.
2: Ascension Island, which is nearby, would become home to an American airbase, thanks to the Lend-Lease Agreement in 1942, but St. Helena had no such luck, and would have to wait until 2016 for an airport to be built there, which we will hear a little bit about
3: later.
4: What an airport.
3: Ascension is a dependency of St. Helena now, so the the, the same governor rules both.
4: And uh, Tristan de Cunha. And Tristan de Cunha.
3: Which I think
2: also contends for the most isolated island mm. in the world. I mean, you're you're kind of splitting in You know, there's there's a few contenders for that. Title, I think as but, a peek
4: behind the curtain, we we yeah. considered all three as an episode, uh, or you know, each one of the three, and we may well go we to did. another one. But uh, we just kind of decided to opt for one that seemed
3: they're only really linked administratively, yeah. rather than in any other way, because they're nowhere near each other. Yeah in
2: 1951 90 of the population was infected with bumps which sounds mumps! great uh, you
4: got the mumps son yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Um, there was one positive aspect of the war which was that flax which we mentioned slightly earlier which at the time was one of the island's principal exports was in high demand because of the war effort prices reached a peak in 1951 and then fell off sharply thanks to increased competition from synthetic fibers, which themselves were developed as part of the war effort.
3: Oh, the war giveth and the war taketh away. Within
2: 15 years, every single flax mill on the island would close.
3: <sighs> oh, God.
2: Yeah. So it's like, well, we still we still got the flax. And no.
4: I mean, they still do have the flax. It's just eating up all of their endemic plants. Um, mm. Apparently uh, local kind of um, park ranger types have to go around pulling flax out of the ground because it's frigging everywhere. Flax news there. Yeah.
2: The population was still growing very slowly uh and fell between 1946 and 1956 thanks to a combination of whooping cough, <laughs> uh, acute nephritis and the mumps.
4: What wait, uh, wait, sorry. <laughs> it's a weird way of phrasing. Loads of people died, but uh... but but it, it it's a lot of like primary school stuff. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like they all uh, they yeah. all died from chickenpox. But at the
2: time uh,
3: th- this is actually something
2: <laughs> at the time this was stuff that we, you know, this, this we weren't is, easily able to combat, I guess, uh, particularly on such a small and and kind of concentrated hmm. population.
3: Yeah. This is something that the guy I interviewed actually mentioned to me was was that um, he's seen a, a flu pandemic firsthand while living there, where just everyone gets the flu because no one yeah, has any immunity to the flu. Like this is the thing we talk about in yeah, all of our our small. episodes, where like you know Europeans conquer a place and everyone just gets something normal like flu or or smallpox and they all oh. just die, and it sort of happens in places like this where there's no herd exposure herd immunity kind of to to viruses yep. and so someone comes in on a, on the mail ship with a strain of flu you're not you've never seen before everyone gets it and hopefully it doesn't kill everyone but you, you yeah it's apparently quite scary to just see a whole decent percentage of the community just flatten for a while i mean that's that's how it
2: happens in in small isolated populations mm. i guess
3: the final political exiles in uh, St. Lena that I'm aware of were in 1957, and there were three Bahraini political agitators who seemed like they had quite reasonable views. Um, I, I don't string know much about Bahraini uh, politics, but they seemed to be um, in favour of less British influence over oh. their country. Um, oh, string them up. Oh,
0: string, string, up. No, 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 string up. Fighting
3: sectarianism between Sunnis and Shias. string
4: them up, up. Highest, highest, highest. And highest string, allowing. String,
3: Allowing trade unions to exist.
4: Oh, these commie scum. String them up. Yo, string them up.
3: To me, that all sounds fine. Uh, But maybe they were also evil in some way. (laughs) And they were freed two years later by uh, a writ of habeas corpus, uh, having forced (laughs) the government to prove their imprisonment was legal.
4: We have no reason to imprison you.
3: You remember from our mini-sode on um, on Magna Carta, habeas corpus goes back quite a while. Yet another callback.
4: Mm-hmm. Texas.
3: We need footnotes. Is there audio footnotes? <laughs> in
2: 1969, the first elections were held under a new constitution for a 12 member legislative council. Uh, and by 1976, the population had grown slightly to 5,147 inhabitants. Uh, in 1977, the RMS St. Helena began its regular trips between South Africa and the, and the island and replaced a previous Union Castle liner. The Saint Helena had previously served as a coastal passenger vessel, which ran be- between Vancouver and Can anybody guess? Thank you, island. No previous episode.
4: Alaska, surely.
2: Alaska, yes. It has to be. So the RMS Saint Helena, the mail ship that still, I believe, still serves uh, the island today, yeah, began its life as a. So,
3: so no, I think I think they replaced it in 1990 with a new RMS Saint Helena. It's true. Um, yes, because. Oh, okay. Yeah, my understanding is that it's the same name but a different ship. Yep. But uh, h- here is a clip of Fran describing the route of the of the mail ship across its two-month round trip around the Atlantic.
0: The round trip was a two-month trip from the UK to mm. Tenerife, to Ascension, to St. Helena, then down to Cape Town. Once a year, then out to Tristan the Coon and back. And during the voyage, going south and going north, the shuttle between St. Helena and Ascension. Everything that came to the island came on the the RMS. There was no other way of getting anything to or from the island.
2: Cool. In the 1980s, then widespread poverty, which was uh, unfortunately a a characteristic of life on the island at the time, was eased by the Falklands War, which created a lot of job opportunities for St. Helinians um, in both the Falklands and Ascension Island. In 1981, the British Nationality Act reclassified St. Helena and 14 other crown colonies, including our old friend Gibraltar, as British dependent territories, as a result of this uh, British Nationality Act, the islanders lost their status as citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies, mm. and were stripped of their right of abode in the yeah. UK. So they were British Great. but not
3: UK citizens, and so they couldn't go to university. Yes,
2: so for many years, islanders had emigrated to the UK to find work and go to university, and yeah, and that was stopped after this point, which created somewhat, uh, you know, even exacerbated the the poverty that existed on the island um, at this point. Right here I have a kind of an interesting aside where like St. Helinians apparently often move abroad and settle in groups. So Hmm. they still have like a very tight-knit community wherever they go, recreating island life as much as possible. So the saints on Ascension Island and the Falklands live, work and socialize together. And most of them in the UK live in an area of Swindon, usually known as Swind (laughs) Helena. Oh my God. Yeah. That's Uh, That's weird. And
3: apparently there's, there's an annual sports day in Reading for saints. Which is nice. And in
2: Cape Town in South Africa, there's said to be a larger saint community than there is on St. Helena itself. Oh, that makes sense. So they're uh, still fiercely loyal to this place that they call home.
3: And my understanding is that with Ascension and with the Falklands, it's quite common to sort of move away for a couple of years and often leave your children to be raised by your parents. And maybe then you come back and look after your elderly parents mm. while your children go to Ascension to work. And that there's sort of a lot of you know, families are quite tight knit, but also quite uh, flexible. Pragmatic. Um and whoever can be the breadwinner does that when when it's their turn and everyone keeps the show on the road.
2: Yep.
4: O- old style familying. Yeah, takes a village.
2: Uh so for the next twenty years or so, most uh, Saint Helinians could only find low-paid work with the island government, uh, and only available employment overseas for the island was restricted to the Falklands and Ascension. A period during which the island was often referred to as the South Atlantic Alcatraz. Okay. Which is unflattering to say the least and that pretty much brings us up to i mean not modern day but just a couple of decades ago shall we take another yeah. quick break and then we'll power through the rest of this yes, shall hey everyone hope you don't mind me butting in for just one second and before you skip forward let me tell you that i'm not here to clutter up your podcast feed with ads for mattresses audiobooks or home meal delivery kits as I record this insert, I'm sitting in a damp, rainy Hong Kong after a very long, tiring day at work. But I'm in a great mood, because I've just found out that 80 days has been shortlisted in the education category of the 2018 Podcast Awards. That nomination comes thanks to people like you, our fans. We're part-time podcasters, and we could not produce a show without the support of our listeners. So on behalf of the team, let me just say thank you so much for listening. We know there are a lot of you that choose to download the show and never get in touch and that's perfectly fine but if you are a regular listener we'd really love to hear from you you can get in touch with us via email or on social media or if you'd like to further support the show you can leave us a review on apple podcasts or alternatively if you want to have a say in where the show goes next you can visit us on patreon that's at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast but once again no matter if you followed us from the beginning or if this is your very first episode thank you very much for listening and now back to the show
3: All right, so on Christmas Eve 1990, the frontier was stopped by um, St. Lineal authorities, and Captain Willem Merck was arrested for having millions of pounds worth of cannabis resin on his his ship.
4: The swine.
3: He became the only prisoner on the island that reported. you know, notoriously doesn't really do crime.
4: Mm. But does prisoners a lot?
3: Yeah, usually one at a time. <laughs> or sometimes 6,000. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one times, to
4: 6,000.
2: Maybe living on a, on an island full of exiles actually weirdly convinces people not to turn to crime. Mm, maybe. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know. You're like, oh, well, yeah. you could end up on a place like St. Helena. But
3: also, where are you going to go? Like, you, you can't just swipe someone's TV and then run away. Like, They'll just come around your house next week True. and see you have the TV. I I, I
4: I will say as an aside, I, I when I was in Nunavut that time years ago, uh, there had been an armed robbery. There's no public transport in Nunavut; like there's nowhere to go. There was a minus forty-five like <laughs> storm in, and people were armed robbing each other. So, if if things are bad enough, yeah, there's still crime.
3: Okay. All right. Anyway, um he he executed a, a a dastardly escape by using a bar of soap to make a copy of the key that the guards <laughs> would leave lying around when they went out to smoke. Okay. Because That sounds like a MacGyver episode. Yeah. And um he he left an audio tape of him snoring in a cell as he when, when he left.
4: And Ferris Beeler. There yeah. you go. Be and,
3: uh, yeah, so he, he paid a guy to let him use a boat to go out to a waiting yacht where his friend took him back to the Netherlands. I don't know how he arranged the yacht, but he escaped. Sweet. And they eventually scuttled the ship
2: because they couldn't really figure out what to do with it. So not as much of a fortress as it once was, I no, guess, in, a, in the no, 90s. It, it
3: could keep Napoleon, but it couldn't keep a Dutch drug smuggler.
2: So,
4: some weird guy called Merck.
2: Mark, what do you what do you have on modern day? Well,
4: one thing to mention is... Um, so we we've already a little bit mentioned the the RMS Saint Helena, which is commonly known as just RMS on the island mm-hmm. because the island's already called Saint Helena, and uh, it's also and the
3: only Royal Mail ship left in service.
4: Kind of, actually, the Queen Mary is actually also technically regarded as a, a Royal Mail ship, oh, okay. and there's a weird little um, old timey boat I think in Ontario. There's a like, you know. They they do little lunch cruises on it that is technically an RMS as well.
3: But does it deliver mail? That's the question.
4: Well, I mean, neither does the St. Helena anymore because it was actually decommissioned. And this is not to date the podcast, but literally this week. Yes, uh, the week we're recording is. Yeah, the last the last voyage of the St. Helena. Uh, And I guess if it was leaving St. Helena, it's five days to Cape Town. So it probably just got into Cape Town. About in the last forty-eight hours, the final um, voyage. So th- this uh, this this ship could carry about a hundred and fifty or so passengers, um, and about ninety-two shipping containers uh, in in one of its five-day voyages. For about twenty-eight years, solidly, it's been pretty much the only way on or off Saint Helena. Mm-hmm. Um, it does go to Ascension Island as well, but mainly Cape Town is the main port, which is why it makes sense that there's a big Saint Helena community in Cape Town.
3: Yeah. And then it also goes up to Tenerife and and to the UK
4: and yeah Cardiff oh. uh, some some place off of Portsmouth as well but I think mm-hmm. those are kind of like big big time um, uh, maintenance voyages and no no
3: it does it does the whole two month up and down a couple of times a year well it did so my my understanding from from Fran like he he was on the maiden voyage in twenty eight years ago of this particular RMS. That's how they got to the island. I, I
4: I don't I don't think it stayed as a regular thing. I think certainly in the last okay. like 10 years or so, it became like a, a Cape Town Ascension shuttle, Quite basically. And there's some cool stuff on YouTube just you know, showing how uh, like the ability for them to shop for stuff, particularly mm-hmm. like, you know, fresh fruit and veg is essentially just linked to when this boat comes in. And it is this boat and only this boat. Up mm-hmm. until the British government decided to spend two hundred and eighty two million of my pounds, my hard earned tax pounds. Queenbacks as I like to call them. Well,
2: not all of them are yours. Ah, but I, I mean We don't we don't know his salary. Uh,
4: I mean, okay, so there there are there are less than two hundred and eighty two million people in the UK, so one of those pounds. <laughs> or maybe even several, are my pounds. That's true. So they spent that on an airport on St. Helena. It was a nice idea, you know, tourism and reasons of niceness. But two things. One is the the only way that it makes sense that they built it, apart from, of course, niceness and tourism, is because it is not... a million miles a few thousand miles, but not a million miles away from the Falklands, which uh, the mm. British government does consider that they might need to invade again at some point in the indeterminate future, but also um well it, it's on it's on a mountain they, they built it on a mountain mm. you don't you don't do that, you don't build an airport on a mountain, don't do it, you stupid idiots, because now you can't use the airport because it's very windy on a mountain which is where they built the airport on a mountain. And you don't do that for a reason. And there is massive wind shear. It's not really possible to actually have commercial flights. Uh, They had some trial flights that managed to land in um, uh, Namibia. Um, It's not viable. I think they've had 32 commercial flights in total, not scheduled, mainly charter flights. And now they are just kind of looking at uh, charter flights or, or small aircraft that's really all they can do. And it has been christened the world's most useless airport. So yep. that's the main service that is coming to replace the St. Helena, which has stopped, uh, stopped voyaging this week.
3: And so I'm not really sure how they're going to get food. Like. I did try to go and book a
4: flight, yeah.
2: actually. Um, I did, uh, yesterday, I tried to go and book a flight to St. Helena. And apparently there is an uh, airline that flies from Johannesburg, South Africa. Is it Jetlink? Or something, I think it's so. It's a yeah, regular charger um, that one. F- so yeah, you can fly every Saturday apparently. Okay, uh, I don't know if that's like back back and forth, but yeah. The uh, I looked at like a one way ticket from Johannesburg to Saint Helena. Uh, do you want to guess how much it costs to get on that plane? Uh
4: Thousand dollars,
3: four thousand
2: dollars, around eight hundred right. US dollars. I expect the worst. I mean, is not not terrible, but it's pretty prohibitively expensive if you were you know to want to to work like you know, a, a weekend yeah. away or something. And, and it's yeah. a five hour flight. Yeah. It's
4: not, it's not nothing. So, like it's it's proper. Mm-hmm. So internal transport, uh, cars. I, I highly recommend reading the uh, St. Helena Island dot info, which uh, I think we've all gravitated mm-hmm. towards. It's, it's both it's very really good. informative. Yeah. I pulled it's info from really there as website. well. Yeah. Um, so mm. just a few details on cars. Their license plates generally just have numbers because that's all they need to have. For well,
3: like 12, <laughs>
4: Well, yeah, the most I've seen was a four-digit number. But no, I, I've seen two-digit <laughs> well. number, two-digit numbers. That's, that's wow. I think something I've seen. I think one was a fifty-four. It was a police car. It was wow. a fifty-four. Right,
3: pull over. What's what's your what, what, what's your car's registration number? Brian. Six. <laughs>
4: uh, so there's a thirty mile per hour limit on the island. Uh, the highway code includes the following: drive carefully and slowly near a cinema during closing time. Rule thirty-three, and. Um, Before riding a horse on the roads, make sure you can control it in traffic. Rule 84. There have been no cinemas or horses on the island since the 1980s. Oh. (laughs) And uh, rules for driving like a local on the website include uh, fitting your card with mega speakers that are worth more than the car. And this is just a quote. If P Puff Diddy Dumbo rapper Jay-Z feed KY Jelly and Brain I Ain't is not to your taste, The Crossroads of Life by Mick Flavin Will do just as well. Uh, that that's an Irish uh, country music star. I don't know why that's referenced there.
3: Well, c- c- country music is massive among, okay. particularly, definitely the older generation. Love but, country and western.
4: But Irish country and western.
3: Mm, yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah. I
4: don't know. Like
3: Daniel O'Donnell, Daniel O'Donnell and um, that kind of. It seems to fit with the time. with the yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Rural. And I the, why, the but, dialect is uh, yeah. is wonderful. Like, it, it, they speak English. English is an official language, but they speak it in a different way to anyone I've ever heard speak English before.
4: It, like, it's not, it's not the opposite of South African English, but it's yeah. not the same. It's not the no. same at all. And it it's got a lot a of the
3: grammar language. of, um of, like, Caribbean mm. Patois is so sort of like, you know, um you know, I is instead of I am and you instead of your, you know. Mm. That kind of that sort of grammar that change that's quite common in, in um in Patois is is there, but also the accent is more British. You can find examples on that website actually of, of people speaking.
4: Just to strike out for the for the end of the stuff I have, um, mm. we've already mentioned wirebirds, which are basically in danger. They're they're technically only vulnerable now, but their their numbers are still precipitously low. Uh, there's only a few hundred of them left, and they're only found on St. Helena. We also have Jonathan the Tortoise, uh, taken from the Seychelles. Probably the oldest um, reptile ever, potentially.
3: At least now.
4: Uh, definitely now, but potentially ever. He was born in 1832, most likely. Same year as Gustave Eiffel of the Eiffel Tower, uh, Lewis <laughs> Carroll, and Edward Manet. Um, he's blind from cataracts. He's lost a sense of smell, and... He has excellent hearing, apparently. Um, so just
3: just like Manet, um, Eiffel, and uh, and who's who the other guy?
4: Um, Lewis Carroll.
3: Yeah, Lewis Carroll. Great hearing.
4: Um. In uh, 2017, it was discovered that Frederica, the tortoise that they had paired him with, since he'd become a bit aggressive and randy in the 90s. Since, like, the 80s? Like, they've been together quite a while. Since 91. Since 91, oh. he's been getting his, getting his hump on. However, that they figured out that Frederico was probably Frederico. It was yeah. probably a, a fella. Um, and actually, just to point out, this was luckily timed as St. Helena, very quickly after this, passed a resolution legalizing gay marriage. Um, and the, the, the vote was nine to mm. two on the council. Mm. They were very positive towards it. And here's an 80 yep. days bonus round out of all the countries with a, um, you know, an opinion on gay marriage. Which is the most approving country in the world of gay marriage? And it's a, it's a, it's an eighty days former episode. It's one we've done. Wow. It is indeed um, very progressive, very chilled oh, out. Tasmania. Mm, good guess. No, I think they
3: voted very heavily in that referendum.
4: Uruguay. Uruguay, indeed. Ah, yeah. And and the least approving is also yes. is also an eighty days country. Now,
3: Liberia brunei
4: they, they, i would say that they're joint bottom with armenia which should give you a massive clue uh georgia georgia indeed the georgians are that. less
3: georgia less approving of homosexuality wow. than liberia
4: okay. um they're they're the least apparently in terms of oh, opinion polls okay. um that's surprising also there's uh dolphins and whale sharks and all kinds of mm-hmm. crazy nonsense in the seas around uh uh, around St Helena uh, the economy you've already mentioned the coffee which uh, Napoleon said was the only good thing about the island uh, he drank it twice a day once for breakfast once for lunch wow. uh, You can, and as you say, you can buy it in London tourism is something they're very keen to try to nab onto with the airport uh, I think we mentioned it earlier there are some se- seemingly right wing talk radio types who are very against this uh, we'll lose the islandness of it which is true uh, but um, at the same time uh, there's a bit of, you know, all them immigrants coming in, mm, um, changing our ways, uh, usurping our women, our, etc. Our, our,
3: our pure, poor... <laughs> our, our pure West multiracial... African, uh, Chinese. We didn't even <laughs> mention <laughs> the Chinese laborers. Sorry about that. Oh, there was uh, a yeah. whole clatter of Chinese laborers brought to the island Chinese, after slavery was abolished. Chinese, all, all kinds of... Th- and, so, the, 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 and, and yeah, Madagascar people. is everything.
2: That's a trend we've seen... In in several other episodes as well, right? It's like you know, yeah. If yep. you can't once slay the African slaves are removed, kind of Chinese labor immigrants just work come in to, to fill the void. The, the, the
4: national dish is a fish curry stew. Mm. Just uh, for reference, they they plo, they, yep, plow, which is like short for pilau. They they just you know ah. they're very international, but the tourism is a thing, but also they're getting into renewable energy they have multiple um wind turbines uh solar panels but they're still using 75 uh, uh fossil fuels i did read a big thing about line and pole tuna fishing because they have a massive fisheries oh, yeah, yeah, area yeah, yeah. um but they they, mm. they fish the tuna w- with a stick line. yeah with a st- yeah. with a stick and a string it's really it's really cool to watch but it's also very sustainable compared to what else is mm-hmm. happening down there and that's also yeah, kind of linked and, to their they, tourism.
3: They, they have to protect their waters from big trawlers, basically. It's kind of kind all they of got. Come in.
4: Yeah. And they don't but have like any.
3: They, they do tuna straight out of the water. They can it on the island. You have guys drive around in vans coming door to door every day except Sunday, selling you fresh fish, which sounds kind of
4: nice. Yeah, it's pretty deadly. Uh,
3: that's
2: that's mm. the way to eat it. Unemployment is very low mm. on the island. February 2016 census said that only 76 people... Self declared that they were unemployed, with just ten claiming unemployment benefits, wow. compared to uh, economically active population of two thousand five hundred and thirty nine uh, from a total population of four thousand five hundred and thirty four. And also, there is no ATM on the island, so uh, you have to get your cash from the bank if you hmm. if you want to get your hands on. Have on, on the pound, right? They do, the
3: yeah, equal in value
2: to a sterling. Yep. And Jonathan the tortoise appears on the five p coin. Ah, I yep, believe that's, that's cute. Also, internet access apparently is really bad and is also very expensive. So you're talking like, I think like I think I read a stat of like ninety pounds or something for like one megabyte internet or wow. something. So it's, we uh, probably won't get yeah, too many not, so downloads then. If you're listening to this, thank you for thank you so uh, using much. your extremely overpriced internet for
4: download, to download this this podcast.
3: We should have compressed the file more. And,
4: and if you're if shit. you're not listening, then we're calling you yeah. out like a, a wrestler. <laughs> you worms. You don't have a it takes to download our podcast, you worms! Literally, I have a
2: list of uh, some really interesting settlement names. Oh, let okay. Just run it's through them real quickly, because some of them sound like they're out of like directly out of like a Tolkien story or something. We got Half Tree Hollow, yeah. Man and Horse Cliff, Lemon Valley, Ooh. Alarm Forest, Broad Bottom, Donkey Plain, hmm. China Lane, Cockolds Point, <laughs> Sharks Valley, Nosegay Lane. And there's also a place in St. Helena called Scotland. And there's also an island in Scotland (laughs) called St. Helena. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was was pretty interesting. (laughs) And also kind of confusing. Anything on
3: sport before we finish up? Shooting is surprisingly... They're surprisingly good at shooting. In in that they compete in Commonwealth Games and stuff.
4: No medals, though. They they have a zero medal.
3: There's a nine-hole golf course. Really? Yeah. Diving in the wrecks.
4: Popular. Oh, yeah. That's a biggie.
3: And then there's a game called Skittles, which is very popular and competitive between communities on the island, which is kind of a bowling type, like not 10-pin bowling, but not not 10-pin bowling.
4: Skittles, it, like Skittles, like, like, Skittles. Little, like, it's like, little like bowl.
3: outdoor bowling sort of, isn't it? Yeah.
2: You know, yeah.
4: play Skittles when you're a kid?
3: Yeah. knocking over Skittles. Yeah. Anyway.
4: Skittles. Yeah. Skittles.
3: Like, I don't know what regulations they're using, but. Uh... Yeah, it's
4: l- loose, loose Skittles-ing, just, mm. you know, free form, getting it done.
3: But no, no, no Olympic medals. Um,
4: and no, no Commonwealth medals either. No, I'm not sure no. they have any medals, guys. I think it's it's zero on the and
2: medals. Aren't very many. One murder in living memory we have here as that, well. That's my uh, understanding. I I, yeah. I, I I don't know if we have any more detail on that, but uh, yeah. it I mean, was me. Very low crime rate, thankfully. <laughs> a crime rate of one.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh. I get the impression is that it's a tight knit community of, of nice people, really far away from everything, who. You know, have to be resourceful because the next ship is coming in two months. So
4: again, like nothing that they've done Mm. seems bad. Occasionally, things have been kind of lumped onto them, and they seem to have dealt with it really well. And they're still there, and they're still grand. And they uh, they they
3: have the patience of saints, don't they?
4: They do indeed. Stop, stop
2: it,
3: stop it. (laughs) All right.
2: So. If you want to find more episodes of this podcast, you can go to 80dayspodcast.com you uh, really should. to find more about all the many episodes that we mentioned yeah. in this episode, which is, again, the nexus of all of our episodes. If
3: someone wants to draw like a a, a, a network map of, uh, of all of the cross links, that will be quite nice.
2: Like a web. This is
4: the patient zero yeah, of our episodes.
2: If anybody would like to uh, help out the podcast, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts uh and we'd very much appreciate yes, that please. or anywhere else you get your podcasts you can also connect with us on twitter or facebook or instagram by searching 80 days podcast or you can email us directly at 80 dayspodcastgmailcom at gmail.com leave us some feedback uh let us know if there's a, somewhere else you'd like to hear about and we appreciate you listening you can also find more recommended reading or uh links to various other resources where you can find more about saint helena if this has not been enough for you uh in our show notes or on the website Finally, this week, we also have to thank our patrons, our new patrons on uh, Patreon. Patreon is a platform where you can back creators that you like. And this month, we have four new patrons to thank. Nick Eisen, Darren Clark, Owen Byrne, and Eric Tepest. Thank you guys so much for your generous support. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, We couldn't do it without you guys. Keep trucking. Also, we should shout out uh, superfan Nick Eisen, one of our recent Patreon backers, who actually went to to visit Nauru recently, uh, one of our locations that we covered in season one, off the back of the podcast, which is amazing.
3: I I hope it was nicer than we made it sound. Uh. So uh, he sent us a nice clip. So take it away, Nick. Hello, this is Nick from Vancouver in beautiful British Columbia. I'm presently sitting on the balcony of Iwa Lodge in Nauru, watching a tremendous thunderstorm brewing on the horizon. The season one episode about Nauru gave a fantastic synopsis of the situation here and triggered the geopolitical nerd in me to want to pay a visit and experience it for myself. It is most certainly a fascinating place to explore and is one I'd likely wouldn't have considered visiting if it weren't for the episode. Thank you very much for sharing
2: that with us, Nick. Um, And I mean, if anybody else is visiting somewhere that we've covered previously... Or anywhere,
3: indeed. We would love to hear about it. And uh, for those of you who are interested in sort of that part of the world... We'll be heading back there in a few episodes. So stay tuned and you'll hear about another little island territory. Yes. Also, like I said, I I hope uh, our Neil Armstrong tier backers enjoyed the postcards they got on my recent trip to the Far East. Mm. If you'd like to benefit from such things in the future, just uh, sign up to Patreon and you you too can read my horrendous handwriting. Or one of the other guys. (laughs) on <laughs> our next exotic trip
2: that will be patreon.com uh, forward slash 80 days podcast mm-hmm. if you want to find out the uh, various perks including aforementioned postcards that uh, our Patreon backers enjoy that's it for this episode thank you guys very much for listening again
4: Mark where can people find you on the internet you can find me at Boyle 86 on Twitter
3: and Joe timedburn.com where burn is spelt N E. and uh, I've actually started updating it again so uh, oh, people you might flipper. enjoy some Making some, me look like a real so, jerk. some more up to date blogging nice. than
2: usual you can follow me on twitter at the luke j kelly or at my website lukejkelly.com uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time
1: Bye-bye. bye bye